This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. Hey, Steph, Michelle and I were talking as Miguel joined us about and we need to do an episode on the power of saying no. And oh. so we don't want to forget that. But we're so glad Miguel didn't say no because yes. we're really happy he's here today with us. Thank you for having right. me. But we've just kind of run over the fact that we want it to be a fun conversation and that we have the power of do overs. And so we can always put the brakes on and, and pick it back up again. So is everybody ready? Three, two, one. Who we are as people who we are as teachers. Like I say, every four years I'm popping. I'm a military kid in the Air Force brand. I also write fiction and do other crazy stuff. Creativity is imbued in every single thing I do. I came here to be an aerospace engineer. How did you get interested in politics? Uh, I'm sorry, Stephanie, that's really none of anybody's business. <laughs> <laughs> We're all steeped in the same tea. Welcome to the other side of campus. I am Dixie Stanforth, Professor of Instruction in the Department of Kinesiology and Health Education. And I'm Stephanie Seidel-Holmston, Assistant Professor of Instruction in the College of Liberal Arts. Before joining UT in 2017, Dr. Pinedo earned his master's in public health from UC Berkeley. He then received his PhD in global health from UC San Diego and completed postdoctoral training at UC Berkeley. Dr. Pinedo's research investigates how immigration enforcement and control policies contribute to existing racial or ethnic health disparities, risk practices, and health outcomes of Latinos, both immigrants and non-immigrants. Miguel, thank you so much for joining us today. We really can't wait to dive into this. But first, I wonder if you'd share your story with us. How did you end up at UT Austin? Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I've been at UT. This is my fifth year. And basically when I was, when I finished my postdoctoral fellowship at UC Berkeley, I was on the job market. So basically I was just looking for any opportunities at any university where I thought it was a good fit. And UT was actually my first choice and my only interviews. And when I came to UT, I just thought it was a very nice fit. I was really intrigued by the research that faculty were doing, the resources and investment that UT had. I was really interested in, given my research in Mexico, with all the partnerships and collaborations going on in Mexico. And so I thought it was a really good fit. So that's why after I interviewed for UT Austin, where it was December, before Christmas, I had the job offer and I delayed it for a month, but I knew it was going to accept. So I canceled all all the other interviews. So that's how I came here. Yay. So we we were your your first choice. Exciting to hear. I wonder, how did you get involved in that stream of research at the border in Mexico? Could you tell us a little bit about that? I feel like I've been doing this work since I was an undergraduate. I did my undergrad at UC San Diego. And so being so close to the border, border issues were always highly prevalent. And when I was an undergrad, I did an undergraduate research training program that was called the Mexican Migration 
training program. And basically it was a program that you had to apply to and it was a year long class. And part of that was to train undergraduates and get them interested in research. And it was really nice because they paired us up with a graduate student and they took us through all the steps of conducting a research study. So the first semester, it was about doing a literature literature review, identifying gaps in the, in the literature, and then how would you construct a survey around a research question? And then the second semester, we were, we were in the quarter system. So the winter quarter, we actually went to a rural town in Mexico and interviewed migrants and people that had never migrated and then interviewed their family members on the U.S. side. And then the third quarter, it was manuscript data analysis and manuscript writing. And so that experience really ignited my passion for migration related issues and, and research. And so being that fieldwork experience exposed me to a lot of issues surrounding migration and even how family members who were in Mexico who were left behind who have never migrated were still being impacted by family separation. And so seeing both sides of of the story was really interesting. And so I've kind of just been developing that interest, how different migration experiences influences health, international migration, and then internal migration within Mexico from rural to urban return migrants. And then I left to do my master's in public health. And then when I was wanted to pursue a PhD, I wanted to pursue a focus. Uh, I wanted a program that had a focus on migration. And at the time, the field now has grown so much. But at the time, there wasn't any global health, any international work was really focused in Africa and India and other countries, but nothing really in Latin America or Mexico. But again, because UC San Diego was so close to the border, they had a lot of they were doing a lot of border work. And so I went there and started working in mental health and substance use, working with um, injection drug users and very vulnerable populations. And that led me to 2014-ish when I started doing my dissertation work. And from that, we had a cohort study of injection drug users. And from there, we found this unexpected finding that those who had been deported had four times the odds of being HIV positive. And so that was an unexpected finding. And we didn't really, the study wasn't designed to, to study immigration or deportation. We just asked very basic questions. And so that kind of led us to ask for the first time, well, what, what does it mean to be deported? What is that experience like? And so me and some other, my advisor and other colleagues started delving more into it, to what are factors that are specifically associated with the deportation experience. And so we uncovered many social and structurals, a lot of stigma because deported migrants are very visible in the community that stand out uh, because a lot of them are, have spent most of their time in the U.S. So they're very Americanized. They lack Mexican identification documents, which is a barrier to healthcare, to gaining access to the formal economy, to, so finding a job, high rates of homelessness, and then just these emotional impacts of being separated from your family. And that ultimately increased susceptibility to high-risk behaviors and their risk for HIV. And so that was really, really intriguing. And so here at UT, I'm st- I've continued with a line of work by focusing more on more on the U.S. U.S. family who typically stays behind when someone is deported. How is the deportation of a family member, of a parent, how does that impact U.S.-born Latinos? Um, and so that's where, where I'm at now. You know, I'd be really interested to hear you think a little bit about then this UT classroom in Austin. How do you experience the students here as you are thinking through these topics in the classroom? 
I've met students who have experienced what you are describing as a state, Texas is available, UT is available to students without documentation. And so through the various waves of migration and U.S. sentiment towards people born outside of the United States, our student body feels that both personally and as well in our community. And I would just be curious if you've had sort of moments of connecting with students around these topics. Yeah, yeah. And so I actually bring in my own work in in the classroom. So when I, so I, I talk a lot about so I bring into the deportation aspect when I teach intro to prom- health promotion. And that's very exciting, too, because it exposes students to what is health promotion? What does public health look like in, in the real world setting? Um, and deportations are such a timely issue. And now I'm teaching public health challenges along the U.S.-Mexico border. And so that's a course that I developed specifically for this reason, because I know that a lot of students at UT well, for our department, we attract a lot of first-generation college students. A lot of them are from the valley, so from the from border communities. And so it's been really nice to have to see them so excited and intrigued on these issues because they bring in a lot of their own lived experiences. And then looking at expanding from individual behaviors. So how does immigration policies, how does deportations? Many times I find students will be like, oh, well, I've heard of deportations and I know what that is, but I've never really sat down and thought, oh, these processes and these practices have health implications. So I find that very exciting. Miguel, it's fascinating to me the breadth of your research stream, and it runs really, it sounds like, from the individual level through the community level out to, you know, the the total (laughs) picture of what our entire society is looking at and dealing with right now. As Stephanie has asked about, you know, some of these interactions in the classroom, what could you share with us in terms of perhaps having a class, whether it's intro to health promotion or this other course where you're looking at at being very focused on those public health challenges at the border? What is it like to have a class with with students who've never met somebody from the other side of the border? to people who have families on the other side of the border, to, you know, individuals who have dealt with these issues from deportation to anything that you're describing, perhaps some of the public health challenges as well. What does that look like in in blending that into a classroom? And how are you able to connect with such a a broad continuum of students? Yeah, so I really like teaching health, intro to health promotion, because that it's an introduction class and one of our core classes that are that students in our department have to take before they're able to take courses in their field of interest. And so it attracts a lot of freshmen. And so for them, I find it exciting because the first, the first day of class, I asked them, I just pose a question. What do you think health promotion is? Come up with a definition of health. And what do you think you're going to learn in this class? And so commonly, I mean, every, every semester that I teach that class, the common answer is we're going to learn how to diet and exercise. And then we're going to learn how to teach other people to diet and exercise. And then I do the next course. The next class, I do kind of like an overview of the course and we do, well, it's, we're going to learn about politics. How do policies influence? How do social networks, how do social norms influence health? How do people's so, um, economic environments 
Um, how does the physical environment impact health? And so I often find that after that first class, I have a couple students that would come and come up to me after class and be like, I, I've never really thought about health from this, this broader perspective. And for students, even in the specialized course in the border health class that have experience, for instance, a family who's been, who has been deported, or even now I have a student whose father is a border, border enforcement agent. And so they bring in their own lived experiences and just, they just make the context so much richer because they see they can connect with the material. And they can think of examples from their own personal experiences, and then they openly share with other students. So, so yeah, so it's a, a realm of v- various diverse students, yeah. Well, now I have even more questions. What did COVID do to all of these patterns that you're investigating? How did COVID affect folks that are crossing borders, folks that work in one country and live in another? What did that look like on the southern border in COVID? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I talk about COVID basically in all my classes because it's so timely. I do a special module on just COVID and deportations and COVID and cross-border mobility. So the U.S.-Mexico border, for instance, Tijuana and San Diego is the busiest land crossing border in, in the whole world. More people cross that border every day than any, anywhere else. And there's a lot of cross-border mobility. So people in Mexico going to school and working in the U.S. and vice versa. So people from Mexico, uh, from the U.S. also crossing to the U.S. And so that provides a very, very real world, world example. And we, we talk about, well, if we're trying to prevent a, pand- a pandemic, we're trying to mitigate spread. And then we have these environments. What are some challenges? And also you can't tell people if they have dual citizenship, you can't bar people from coming in and out of the country. So how, so it's just, it's very complex, but they're, they're very intrigued and it just, it just, it it brings up more challenges. Yeah. So we try to come up with, I have them try to come up with strategies on how to mitigate this. And they, it becomes very clear very quickly that this is such a huge complex issue that, that we haven't really addressed very, very well. It is so fascinating to think about these insights that we've learned along the way through COVID. And I think one, when I think of what you're describing, I teach race and gender, is sort of who does what in the economy. And this idea of who could go home during COVID and who still was on the front lines. And we see that race and country of origin mattered in the United States in terms of who was vulnerable to COVID. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So then my other question related to the students. So as you're describing, and I do this in my race and gender class, I often think about how to create an environment where students are willing to share out their own experiences. That is a safe and a brave classroom. And it includes avoiding sort of descriptions of what they do and trying to create a sense of all of us. This is our lived experience. Do you have strategies for creating a classroom where students are willing to share their own experiences? Not specifically. And I also worry that's a concern of mine too. For instance, when I had a student share that her her father was a border agent, uh, I was like, oh, this can go <laughs> very well, very good. So it went very well, but because she shared up some insights from, well, you know, my dad, this is his type of work and challenges that he faces. Well, what I try to do is I know there's different learning styles and, and students have different modes of where they feel comfortable expressing themselves. And so I try to do a variety of, of methods in terms of 
writing it over Fraction, doing small group discussions, and then doing large group discussions. So I find that that that's been very helpful, especially they they enjoyed from from my student evaluations, especially the um, the small group discussion. They've stated that it's very interesting to hear other people's insights and other people's opinions on and even their own experiences on, on a topic. Miguel, I've had the the good fortune of being able to observe your teaching, which has been fun for me. And we do want to talk a little bit about some of the challenges of being at an R1 institution and the, the demands of teaching as well as research. But I wonder, relative to what you were just talking about with, with the teaching, when you think about letting students have that voice, I think that you do a really nice job with that. So when you said that you don't really have any strategies, I think some of those ideas that, that you just shared are some great ways to be able to give students a voice. And I wonder, particularly with this newer class you're teaching, the public health challenges along the U.S.-Mexico border, is it more difficult to have students feel comfortable and, and safe being willing to really share what, you know, maybe not everybody agrees with them or maybe they're, they're sharing something that not everybody would be ever able to enter into that lived experience? How can we make our classrooms a place where each student would feel the freedom to be able to share out of, as you and Stephanie have both spoken of, that lived experience? I don't know about the answer to that. I, I, and that's something, it's a challenge and something I, I, I think about too. One thing that I do try to do is when I'm presenting an issue, I try to present kind of a counter, counter argument. And I use a lot of documentaries or clips to kind of like humanize, right? So when we're talking about for instance, a deported migrant, I'll show like a five minute clip of something that I found online or on YouTube that tells this person's story. And that helps them kind of visualize, okay, well, we're not just talking about a deported migrant. Like I can actually see this as an actual real person. I also try to present kind of that counter argument, right? So people are being deported, but, you know, other people are supporting that. And why is that? So... And even though I don't always agree with the counter argument, I, I tell them, even if you don't agree with this, this is what, once you leave the classroom, you're gonna interact, interact with a, diver, a diversity of people that are not gonna have the same same belief systems as you. And so you need to be prepared to, to respond to something that's that's out of your comfort or your own opinion. Well, certainly lessons for all of us, right? It's so easy to think that everybody believes what I believe, and and that's just isn't the way it is in the real world and learning how to navigate those conversations. I know on campus here at UT, there's a, a series called, Steph, You Can Correct Me, Difficult Dialogues, and being able to learn how to navigate some of those challenging conversations is is really a powerful skill that that I have seen you mentor students in. And they learn how to do that in your class. So I'm wondering if you could maybe speak to what has it been like to be a, a relatively new faculty member pre-COVID and then boom, COVID hits and you get this big grant. Have you been mentored well through this process? Tell us a little bit about what that side of your life at UT is like. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've enjoyed my time at, at UT. I find that our department is very collegial. And so when, and I even told a colleague, probably like my first, after the first year, because when I was being mentored, like I, I thought academia was going to be very cutthroat, very like 
like everyone's like just trying to survive. And then I got to UT and I was like, oh no, people are very friendly and very, they want to see you succeed. (laughs) And so that's something that's always on my mind, even though it can be demanding and very stressful. Um, There, I think UT has done a, a, a good, presents a good message that we want you to succeed at the end. And so I've had, it's, it's been a great run. And then COVID has been very interesting. So fortunately, my study wasn't too impacted because it was an online study. It was designed to be an online study. So um, there was no human subject or human interaction. So I wasn't any editing, but I had delays in terms of because I deal with substance use. And then we have this pandemic that's been the worst pandemic public health crisis in the last hundred years. And then doing a study on alcohol use when people are increasing their alcohol use and when they're experiencing additional stressors in terms of loss of employment, uh, child care issues. And so all, all these factors that we know that are already associated with increased alcohol use. So that caused a lot of delays. So I was going to start data collection in March when the pandemic hit and when everything was shutting down. So I'm like, I'm going to delay this a little bit. See, in my mind, I was like, six months, we're, we're done. So I can delay it for six months. Um, and then it got to the point where like, it was like, it's not going away. So we, and I can't delay this any further. So so that was a challenge. Um, the other challenge was, uh, which it presented a unique opportunity because I wanted to, I knew that the data was not going to be generalizable because of, because of, of the pandemic. So it provided me an opportunity to add some COVID related questions in terms of how's, how has your alcohol and drug use changed since the pandemic? Has it increased? Has it stayed the same? Has it decreased? How's it affected your ability to get treatment or have you experienced any economic economic um, consequences or job related consequences? And so we're we've finished data collection and, and it's very I'm very we've done preliminary analysis, but it's very exciting in terms of what we're now I can ask what are the implications of COVID on on people that use alcohol? So the last two years have been interesting in terms of being a faculty member, especially being a new faculty member, I miss just seeing my colleagues and just being in person. As you were describing these findings, Miguel, I wonder how you would answer a question if a student asks you after reading this data and the student says, I want to work in a community, helping people, working with families. Why would you say research is the place where they could go? Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. So the work that I've done in the border has been we incorporated a lot of the community. So a lot of the community members are part of the research team, but then we also work with nonprofits and colleagues that are, are in Mexico. So it's a binational team. So I highlight how research can really be used as a resource to get funding, for instance. So I give the example how we were in Tijuana. We, we were documenting the prevalence of HIV among very high-risk populations, so injection drug users, commercial sex workers. And then I tell them, okay, now we've documented, we have this HIV epidemic, and then we funnel that research to nonprofits and help them write grants to develop in interventions. To so start um, a needle exchange program, for instance, or start an um, intervention aimed at increasing, um, reducing harms with populations, but also as a researcher, evaluating that and documenting that, that these these programs are working. So I do highlight that. So I think that gets them really excited because for students in general or, you know, sometimes 
or just general public, sometimes people think the research is just sitting at your desk writing papers and then it kind of just goes out there in the universe and then no one ever does anything with it. And so I really do try to highlight that that collaboration. You can work with community organizations and be create change by using using research. wonder too, how do conversations in the classroom then inform your research? I, I think the, the questions that students ask going to inform because they'll ask some really intriguing questions. Sometimes like, like, I'm like, oh, I've never really thought about that. That's a good question. I should add that to my survey. Things like that. Yeah. Or when they, when they ask questions and well, want me to elaborate on something, I'm like, so, yeah, I think I think their questions and intrigues is very interesting. Because there's a way I totally agree with that. And I can think of that. We're collecting some data now and students will say, well, I noticed this trend. You what you saw? That's so fascinating. And because in some ways, you know, we go into the data with some expectations based on the literature. And then a student sees something that we kind of might have missed. And it's like, that's a great question. That is well worth some more data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it, it also makes you wonder a little bit. Sometimes they're curious about things that, that we've forgotten to be curious about. You know, they, they have questions that we've never even thought to ask. And, and that makes me think, Miguel, Stephanie and I both love experiential learning, and it sounds like you do as well. What's your favorite experiential learning opportunity that, that is offered in any of your classes? What is it that, that you do in class where students are, are learning by doing that you think is really cool or powerful? And tell us a little bit about some of the outcomes. So, so one thing that I do, for instance, in this public health at the border class, I have them develop their own research or their own projects. And so I put them in teams and group in small groups at the beginning of the semester and I have them, I have them come up with a, a border health issue and a population and then pick two sister cities. So pick two inter interconnected communities, both in Mexico and the U.S. And I want them to develop their, from their own interest, it can't be a topic that we're going to cover in class. And then as a group are going to do their own case study on that issue. And that's been really interesting. So I have them do individually a paper on a problem, describe the, the why this is a binational issue, who's the population at risk. And then at the second part of the uh, semester, I have them do an intervention to address this issue. So they're all, they're all working individually on the same topic. And then as their final, they come in together and do a presentation. Um, and so the, that's been really, really fun because they pick such diverse topics, populations, things that I, I, I myself have never even heard of. So for instance, in this, this semester, one group is, is investigating dengue at the border. And when they presented that to me, I was like, what are you talking about? Dengue at the border? And then I had a, I did a quick like literature review and I'm like, oh, oh, there is dengue at the border. That's so interesting. I never would have thought that. And so, yeah, so things like that, it's, it's, it, yeah, it's exciting. Yep. It's a thing, huh? And <laughs> that's, we hear about those things oftentimes from our students. What would be the most impactful one that you can remember? I know we don't have favorites, but Sometimes there are ones that really just stick out as either exceptional or just so thought provoking that it really impacted you other than dengue. I think one project last year that was really interesting and impactful was reproductive health among detained women. That was really 
really something. And, and there's not a lot of re- research in that area in general, but they were, did a really nice job of explaining the issue, drawing parallels with, with prisons and jails and, you know, how detention centers operate very much uh, as these, these high risk institutions. And I was just really impressed by their, just their level of thinking. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of times the the thoughtfulness and the excitement for them in in being able to dig into something like that. And then I would think the power of your being able to speak into their lives and to say, there's not a lot of research about this. This is a really important question to be asking. And doesn't it get you excited to think, you know, that people from that group or others in the class who heard about it, that down the road, they might be the ones who begin to ask and answer some of those questions for all of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's exactly what I tell them. I'm like, if this is something that's interesting to you, no one, and there's no research on it, it's, it, it really is up to you. If you want to delve more into this, I, uh, yeah, I encourage them to, to, to follow up on that. Yeah. And I always tell them, I look forward to one day you becoming my colleague because we're going to be colleagues down the line. And so they get, yeah, they get really excited. I love that. What a great, and the, your description of your own undergraduate research where you developed that literature review to think about those gaps and then you did that field research. It sounds like you're bringing that experience into your teaching and I think your students for sure are benefiting from that. We see movement of people. I'm thinking of people from Haiti who moved through Chile and now into Del Rio, Texas. We're watching people in Belarus and the border with Poland. When I'm watching these events, given your research, what do you wish I kept in mind? What do you wish I understood about that situation that maybe is not really sort of covered in the top news? Well, that's, that's a very interesting question. And so I, I've told my students and every, I've, I emphasize this during the class is that so this is this course on the border is very, um, very specific to a very specific region. And I tell them you have to think about parallels and how does it, how this can be a case study for other communities and very globally. Right. Because the U.S.-Mexico border is not the U.S. is not the only border. And so I do try to bring in, for instance, like I show some some pictures of uh, family members who are separated. So family members that have been deported, for instance, or are in Mexico that can't cross into the U.S. And U.S. family members that, for instance, if you're applying for immigration, legal citizenship, you can't you can't leave the country until those that paperwork is 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 done with. I mean, that can take several, several years. So many times what we see is that the border is that family members will coordinate on both sides and meet up and see each other through the border. And so that's a very emotional thing to to experience and to see. And then I show pictures of the Berlin Wall where family members are holding up their baby so that family members on the other side can see. And so that really gets them thinking like, oh, okay, so this isn't just happening here. And then I, I also highlight deportations that are happening globally. So Haitian, Haitian communities being deported from the Dominican Republic and from Chile, from Israel, from Spain, people from African countries being deported from Spain. Um, and what are the implications of that? And so I tell them we're learning something that's kind of local in our own backyards, but how does that apply to, to other communities? Yeah. 
something that we typically do at the sort of end of the interview is that we admit that we learn oftentimes through challenging situations and in fact in failure. And I'm always a little curious to hear where people's growth spot is. So I think of your own work five years in the classroom. What are you looking to strengthen in your own teaching? I, when I came to UT, I didn't have any teaching experience. I had TA'd once and it was an online public health class. So it was just really emailing students and reminders, answering emails. So I, was, I came from a very highly intensive research environment. And so when I started my first, my first day of teaching at UT, I was, I was petrified. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. But I knew how to public speak and I can do a research presentation. And my first year, that was the most difficult year. And I kind of expected that because I'm like, I'm not a I wasn't trained to be a teacher. I don't know what I'm doing, but I think I'll be fine. So so my approach to teaching was kind of like giving a presentation at a conference. So today we're going to learn about the socioeconomic model and I'm going to teach you this. And I quickly realized that it was so boring. Uh, students were not engaged. They were falling asleep. Oh, and no. it, it was really struggle. And, and so for me, the biggest challenge was how do I present this material in a way that resonates with students? And so I, I feel like I've, got, I've gotten better in that regard, but I'm still kind of learning. And so some strategies that, that have worked for me is now I, I focus less on definitions and and I tell them, I'm, I expect you to have done the reading. And then when you come to class, I'm going to show you how this is applied in the real world. So I try to bring in a lot of stories, a lot of narratives to highlight a concept. Um, I bring in a lot of pop culture, which I, I enjoy and I feel like the students in, enjoy. So, for instance, when we're learning about health disparities and black women being at disproportionate risk for uh, high risk pregnancies and infant mortality and mortality during birth. And then we, I tell them the story about, well, let's talk about Beyonce. Let's talk about Serena Williams. And what do you think their lifestyles are? They're very wealthy. They're billionaires. They have access to the best chefs, the best food, the best medical medical services, physically fit. And then I kind of delve into like, well, they both had high risk pregnancies and and they're, they're shocked. They're like, OK, so they're not excused from these racial and ethnic disparities. And so things like that. So instead of just giving a lecture on, you know, just presenting that, that information, tying it to something that's personal to them and that can relate to and then seeing seeing like what they're reading in the textbook is how that is looking like in in real life. So I'm still trying to get better at that in terms of I'm trying to incorporate more storytelling and um, and using stories to to really highlight concepts. Well, and Miguel, I would just really affirm that I've seen you grow in that and I've seen you really invest in becoming a better teacher. And and I, I love having the opportunity to affirm that in you because, you know, we we make choices all the time and you chose not only to follow the research passion, which I really believe that the students catch from you in the classroom. You really are able to communicate that well. But at the same time, you have become a storyteller and you use amazing videos and ways to connect with students at a level that helps them see it come alive in culture and be able to make those connections to to their own lives. And so I, I really applaud that in you and love having the chance to be able to say that to you and have it be recorded 
for all time. <laughs> yeah, no, no, thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. And I know you've, you've seen my trajectory because you've, you saw me my first year, second year and third year. Yeah. And my second year and first year are such big contrasts for me because I, I learned so much from from failure, you know, and I, and I still I'm, I'm still learning from that. I'll give a lecture and at the end of it, I'll be like, that wasn't the best. How can I improve? Or I thought this activity was going to resonate with them and it didn't. They were so <laughs> and bored. It didn't. So yeah. how can I make it more exciting? So, yeah. So definitely I can relate to just learning from failure and trying, trying new mm-hmm. things. Yeah. May it never end. Stephanie and I always joke where I say failure is my brand. And, <laughs> you know, it's just being willing to try some of those things and then also evaluating it. That, you know, that's where you see the blending in of your kind of the research processes of your brain. Even today, I was talking with a student after class who was asking me a question about a take-home case study. And, you know, I told him, I said, you know, your questions, I'm rewriting one of these instructions for the spring. He's like, you do that? And I'm like, I change everything all the time. Every semester, my goal is to make it better for the next time. And I think, you know, being able to look at it not as failure, but really, as Stephanie framed the question, as, as point of growth is, is maybe even a better way to look at it. So I love that, that she framed it that way. I find that students will often ask me just as much questions about the content of the class as my own lifestyle choices. And that opportunity to then model Dixie in your story. I mean, think of the hard questions that we need to pursue in research. We need resilience to do that. We need an ability to fail and come up with another question and keep tweaking the questions to get closer and closer to what we want. That constant sort of redoing, rehashing, rethinking it's neat that that's what those sometimes those personal stories can really bring in. And again, that idea of really not seeing a them in the story, but seeing sort of us in all of these stories is really important. That was my dissertation, the power of personal stories to change health behaviors. And, you know, the beauty of personal stories, I think, is that because it's a story, it kind of transports you. It draws you in with a story you don't sit there and counter-argue the facts in your head. You're listening to a story. And I think there's a power there that is really different than a pie chart, you know, and a, and a graph. Because you might be sharing the same information, but you're telling it in a way that opens the door for all of us to be able to listen to one another and really be able to hear the information in a way that, that kind of sinks into us. And so we love that that's what you're doing in the classroom, Miguel. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. This has been such a pleasure of a conversation. I just am so impressed by the research that you're doing. I'm anxious for those findings and for us to think about that sort of human cost of borders and migration and deportation. And I love that this is something now that is really nurturing our UT community with the work in your classroom and connecting with the students. So such a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, likewise. This was so much fun. Well, Miguel, we are delighted and we wish you the very best. You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. Our executive producer is Mary Newberger. Our producer is Michelle Daniel. And our music and sound design are by Charlie Harper Music at charlieharpermusic.com. For more information, please visit us online at texasptf.org. We hope you'll join us next time on The Other Side of Campus. Thank you. Thank you.